Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Welcome to the 19th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enloe. And I'm Oren Kaplan. And today we are going to be talking about a bunch of fun stuff. We are going to touch on pitches and our various thoughts on that. We also talk about directors versus producers. You know, the battle royale of filmmaking, money versus creativity. And Matt has a topic for us. We also talk about how to decide whether or not you should take a job. It's a great episode. Stay tuned. So, Oren, what have you been working on lately? So, I have had a busy last few weeks. I've been kind of doing a lot of things, pitching, and the highlights are I finally got a TV, some TV commercials to direct, which, believe it or not, is my first time that I'm actually directing 30-second commercials that are intended for television. Uh, I've done stuff that ended up on television in some way. I've definitely edited and worked uh, and shot some stuff that was on TV, but this is my first time directing TV stuff. So I'm super stoked. Unfortunately, the budget is much lower than a lot of the web stuff I'm doing. And I think it'll be one of the topics we talk about today, just how directors and producers fight over budgets because it's, you know, the director wants everything to be awesome. And the producer does too, but the producer has the burden of figuring out a way to accomplish it. And the director only has the burden of wanting it and asking people to do it. So there's that. Uh, We're also still casting that feature. We had a a pass by the third actor that we (laughs) sent an offer out to. It's interesting. I think because TV is so freaking, you know, popular and good now. And if an actor, like an A-list actor, is going to get a few hundred thousand dollars per episode to be on TV, to work during the week, to stay in L.A., why would they go do a movie for half a million dollars, you know? Especially if they're kind of older actors, which is what we're going after right now. So anyway, that's been tough, but we're moving on and trying to find some actors that we have some connections to. But again, that's kind of tricky as well. And then the third thing I've been working on is we actually have an agent attached to our TV show. And we are trying to formulate the pitch, which have you ever pitched TV before, Matt? I have never pitched TV, but I've taken many TV pitches. Oh, right. You've been on the Other receiving end. Have you pitched more web? web, but yeah. 
So what do you what do you think makes a good pitch? I know that we can do a whole podcast about this, but what's your just a quick summary? So I was in the unique sort of scenario. Comedy Central is really, really talent oriented. So we were always aware of a comedic voice before the person walked into the room for the most part. So you kind of know who you're in business with already or who you want to be in business with. But the important thing is always like, do they have the right energy? Do they seem crazy or not? And how cogent is their idea? Like those were always the things that were important to us. So I think it's a different sort of world than what you're pitching in, you know. There is something about that idea that you're being judged as a person almost more than you're being judged as what your idea is because all these pitches are about, you know, trying to start a relationship with someone. And if they can't stand you, no matter how great your idea is, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, that, that was the thing that was the hardest to explain to people because I would always teach the interns how to pitch because they would have to go through this whole process. And I really liked teaching them how to pitch because it made me a more concise and thoughtful uh, pitcher myself. But so the thing that's hard to realize is that the world is filled with awesome ideas. You know, like you have to have a killer idea and be vouched for even to get into the room. Right. That's the you bare know, like minimum, isn't that it? That bare awesome minimum idea. is like that you were super funny, you have an awesome idea, and you know how to execute it. Yeah, like that's that's step zero, right? <laughs> right. So once you get into the room, we're all supposing that that's already the case. Are you a crazy person? Are you interested? Are you phoning this in? That's kind of all of the stuff that we're trying to figure out because you know TV pitches, you're thinking five years down the line. Like I'm going to be in business with this person for a long time. Can I be certain that they are going to toe the party line, going to be a great partner, and that I'm going to have fun doing it? Because if not, in in a half hour, literally, I'm going to take another pitch that I'm super excited for. Yeah, I think the trouble we're having is, or at least that I'm having with our pitch is, I know the idea is cool. I know the characters are fun. I know the plots are interesting. It's like a sci-fi drama. I think that, you know, the genre is right. But I don't, I feel like we're missing that thing that is, makes it painfully obvious why we're the ones that should be making this show and why we have to tell the story. You know, coming in and saying like, it's about that moment in your life when something, you know, and as writing 101 as it is, it's like, what's the theme of our show? And what is it saying? Like, what are people connecting with, like on a deeper level? And that's the part that's like really hard to find. And you can see on a show like Breaking Bad, you know, where it's about this man who is really trying to make himself feel valuable. You know, he's pretending he's doing it for his family, but it's really he's doing it for himself to feel he just wants power, you know? Um, and I think we can all relate to that as human beings. It's just really hard to pitch a show when you don't have that special thing that people are like, oh, yeah, you're so right. Or I so understand that. And so so that's kind of what we're working on right now. And we also, our show is like kind of complicated in part of figuring out the theme and the core of our show, we have to figure out what we should pitch and what we shouldn't pitch because typically I think we want to keep our pitch around 15 minutes long and it's just not enough to explain everything. I want to go back to Breaking Bad in just a second because that's important. But one thing that I would tell the interns that I think is super helpful, you know, people roll their eyes at log lines if it's a this meets that or something like that. Well, like, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I would hear, it's always sunny meets this. It's always sunny but in space, right? And that's, you know, that's a helpful way of painting the picture. But what's even more helpful is if you clarify a little bit of what your reference point is, right? Because 
It's Always Sunny is, you know, an ensemble show with a very specific voice and kind of a dark sense of humor. So those are three different things. And maybe that's true for your show, each of those things, but maybe not. So I would always encourage people to say it's the comedic point of view of It's Always Sunny with the musical parts of Flight of the Concords or the visual style of Flight of the Concords or whatever it is. Like clarifying that a little bit and picking apart those little pieces paints the picture even more for people. But more importantly, Breaking Bad, we as artsy-fartsy types love to compare and strive for the Breaking Bads and the Wires and the Game of Thrones of the world. But you have to have a hit book series or you have to be Vince Gilligan or what, you know, there's a lot of reasons why those guys get to make those shows. And you kind of have to level up in order to pitch a show that audacious and that crazy, right? Um, right. Which like is not better to call Saul. From wanting, you would right. never, you could never sell that show unless you had made Breaking Bad. Absolutely. And yeah, I don't want to discourage people from striving to tell crazy, outlandish, amazing stories. Like, don't go in and pitch any network a mundane, typical, I've seen it before sort of show, but give people a way in. Like, let right. people understand what it is. Paint that picture and don't leave anything to the, the imagination. Really tell people, this is the show that I'm making and this is why you're going to like it. What's interesting is we've compared our show to both The Leftovers and Lost. And we've heard from one person that The Leftovers has very mixed reaction. And so it might not be a great comparison. And another agent, the, our agent, told us, well, The Leftovers is based on a series of books. You don't have that. So... It's like we can trust that this story works because it's a best-selling book. And then when we compare it to Lost, which is this huge J.J. Abrams hit, we got from feedback from one person that said, like, yeah, well, people thought Lost didn't really end up good in a satisfying way, so you might want to avoid that. And someone else said, believe it or not, that they find J.J. Abrams' stories interesting but hard to connect to and that the characters run a little cold and that they feel like we should not really compare ourselves to that so you know it, it's it's tough it's really best to just be super into your idea and not be able to stop talking about it and to have a really clear goal and so that's what we're working on it's it's really easy to say and it's really hard to do cool man well keep us informed i will so matt uh what have you been up to lately this week i delivered the first two episodes of my series shitty boyfriends which is super exciting That'll be on Refinery29. And in fact, the trailer just dropped. Oh, damn. I want to so watch So that's it. exciting. Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, I feel like the episodes are getting better and better, which is really awesome. The fun thing about the show is that, you know, we, we shot for two weeks. And obviously footage from, you know, the very last day is in the same episode as footage from the very first day. And it's all over the place um, because that such is the nature of a bunch of different episodes and a workplace comedy and, and you know all of that but it's nice to see there are instances where i'm like oh i'm better now i'm a better director than when i started this project and that's really nice you think that by the time you got to the end of shitty boyfriend you became a better director absolutely and i think also you know a lot of that is just sinking in with a team feeling better about how to communicate clearly what your goals are and then being inspired by them and being influenced by them and learning, taking the suggestions that they'd made days prior and figuring out new and different ways to make a shot or a scene come to life. It was really fun. Right. That's an, in an interesting idea is, you know, I've had the theory before that you should shoot your most important 
scenes, usually the first and last scene first in the day so that you have the most time to spend on them. Because, you know, by the end of the day, you're trying to shoot scenes in like 10 seconds. But I wonder on a long shoot if you should shoot your most important things at the end of that shoot, because that's when I guess I guess people like on a feature and stuff. The first day you try to do easy steps so that people can start to kind of get Sink comfortable. In. Oh, and my whiskey spots finally dropped. So oh, where are those? Uh, they're on YouTube.com slash whiskus UK. You can read about it in Adweek. Nice, dude. Well, I got some watching to do after we finish recording this podcast. Enjoy the adorable kittens. Cool. Well, anyway, so this week I thought we could talk a little bit about. Hey, folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take, and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. A director's relationship with a producer, this most recent Project Greenlight episode, if you guys have been watching, has the director, you know, rushing to finish shooting in a day, and he literally needs two more minutes, but they've hit the 12-hour mark where everyone starts getting paid overtime, and it's like $1,000 an hour to to keep people on and they're already way over budget and the producer just comes on the set. She's like, I don't care if you need one more second. We are stopping right now. We're pulling the plug. And I don't know about you, but that that relationship between the director and the producer is a really interesting one because the director is always just wants more, 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 more time, more shots, more takes, more coverage. And, you know, they just want it to make it good and they don't care at what cost. And the producer their number one job is to make it happen at a cost. So have you had producers where you have kind of been at odds with in terms of like they're more worried about the budget than the quality and there's not much you can do about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's kind of a couple things at play in a situation like that. Sometimes you're in a situation where you just literally don't have the right amount of money for the job that you're trying to do, you know, because I've been in that situation before where I just have to compromise because there's just literally not the money to do it, period. And then there's the more common situation that I think you and I find ourselves in where, you know, you're kind of constantly weighing what compromises you want to make. The thing with Project Greenlight that's so interesting is that the director, Jason, at least as far as the television show is depicting, which we all know is a highly edited and curated sort of experience, the thing that frustrates me about that show, and I think that I like to think that I do pretty well, is prioritize when I'm picking my battles. So if if Jason, in this situation, had been more tactful and diplomatic in every other instance... Right. Then when a producer steps on and is like, look, we got to pull the plug, 
I feel like typically most of the producers that I work with would be like, hey, listen, you've got 10 minutes. And I would say, I know. And I would know that I've only got 10 minutes. And then when I go over two minutes, we all just kind of like wink to each other and that's that. And I think that really it's about relationships. And then you can kind of fudge it when you need to. Yeah. Is that, is that, a, I, yeah. that's maybe that's a overconfident answer, but. <laughs> so you're basically get along with the producers. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's the whole question is like, are we pushovers? I feel like I wish I was more like Jason and just like stood by my guns. But the problem is, you know, you're always afraid that like what you're fighting for might not be worth it. In post, you're like, eh, didn't need that. <laughs> and then everyone got mad at you because, you know, you want, insisted on shooting something you didn't need. To me, it's about communicating to people that you understand what their needs are and where they're coming from and why they're asking for what they're asking for. If you say, if you just kind of make all of that clear that you get it and then state your case yourself, so I think it's mostly just diplomacy, you know? A thing that I'm constantly working on is figuring out how to stand up for myself when I need to. But if you've always got that undercurrent of tactfulness and diplomacy, in your back pocket, then you know at the very least that they understand why you're doing what you're doing and that we're all working together to make the best thing possible. Because that's the that's the truth, right? It's that a, a producer, it, sometimes it feels like, oh, they're trying to save money or, or whatever. But that's because they know that if, you know, some dumb director decides to spend all of their money in production and then they don't have anything in post, then everyone's screwed as well. Right. So they they just they're trying to plan for this rainy day that may or may not come. And you have to know. And, and that's the thing with experience. You just have to know when it's actually important to go ahead and steal that extra two minutes. And when it's time to go ahead and buy yourself the good graces of your teammate and compromise. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess you're right. I just feel like I'm almost never in a situation where. I feel like we do have enough money, you know, no matter how much we have, I always feel like I'm going for a little bit more. And then so many times I get into this situation, like, well, why, you know, we have a hundred thousand dollars. Why can't we give 500 more dollars to the art department? And then they're like, well, where would we take it from? And then I'll be like, well, do we really need walkie talkies? Yeah, I guess we need walkie talkies. Do we really need this fancy craft service? Well, I guess we could have cheaper craft service, but then we need to hire a PA that needs to take care of all the craft service and, you know, it, it's like any way you slice it, it's like really hard to figure it out. Luckily, I'm, I've worked with quite a few producers that are pretty transparent and have kind of gotten used to me saying like, OK, well, where is the money going? You know, mm -hmm. if, if I'm willing to have a doorway dolly instead of like a Fisher dolly, can I take that money and put it into getting a better light or a better camera? And I think a lot of producers, when I first start working with them, they get really annoyed when I do that because they're like, just tell me what you need and I'll tell you what we can have. And I'll say, well, I told you what I need. Right. We're not getting it. And so now, yeah, I'm micromanaging the budget because I want to get it. Do you ever do that? Do you ever like say like, let me see the budget and let me help you figure out how to get what we need? I won't ever ask to see the budget for kind of a couple different reasons, but I do do that horse trading all the time. And, and I think your, your point is right. Like most producers are pretty transparent where they'll give you a couple choices. Not to talk too much about Project Greenlight, but that was the thing that was frustrating for me, is that Jason had that decision, right? They, like, just the episode beforehand, they were like, hey, do you want to shoot on film, or do you want more time? 
And he said, oh, I want to shoot on film. And I thought his reasoning made a lot of sense. He said, this one decision is going to affect every single frame of the movie shooting on film. So I'm going to make that decision. Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you wouldn't You wouldn't have made that decision, and neither yeah. would would I, but it's funny because on that, on Project Greenlight specifically, I think we're kind of divided. I think you are looking at this director as this madman, and I'm looking at him like, I wish I could be, could do what he does. I tend to be, I mean, it might not come off on the podcast, but I tend to be like a people pleaser. You know, just trying to make everyone happy and trying to pay everyone as much as I possibly can and taking hits and trying to do things on my own. And especially in post, I'll be like, oh, you know, let's lose the whole VFX budget. I'll just do it myself because I want to get things done. But I love how in Project Greenlight, the director there just does not back down. And it doesn't matter that he doesn't have experience. He has a vision and it's working. That's why he won Project Greenlight. I would argue that his lack of experience is what's keeping him from ultimately making the right decisions. I think that you shouldn't back down on your creative your creative vision or what you believe is best for the film, but there are big picture ideas and consequences that I don't think that he's actually weighing and I think the question of whether this movie actually ends up being good or not is really going to be the final decider. You know, like if he makes an amazing movie, if we all walk away and we're like, fuck, then he was right, right? And certainly there are most directors, most of my very favorite directors, I wouldn't want to hang out with. I wouldn't want to have a beer with them. And I definitely wouldn't want to work for them as a below-the-line crew member. You know, like any person who's on like a David Fincher crew who's like, all right, well, we're on take 57. We're in triple overtime. And uh, I'm going to have to sleep in and miss my kid's soccer game tomorrow. They're bummed out for sure. That right. doesn't mean that but they're not bummed out worse. when they're like, dude, I worked on freaking Fight Club. Right. You know? Exactly. Oh, you were a grip on Fight Club. Holy shit, dude. Come work on my thing. We got the grip from Fight Club. But let me ask you a different question, kind of back to this budgets and trying to make things work and working with producers and fighting with crew members. Have you ever been in a situation where, Let's say you want something. Let's say you want like some guy to sneeze and like a hundred shirts to fall from the sky and your art department or wardrobe department, whoever is like, oh, well, that's going to be really expensive. That's going to be like $5,000 worth of T-shirts. And you're like, what are you talking about? I could go to like the thrift store and get them for like $50. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, but, you know, we need to hire a person. We need to make sure you approve it. We need the client to approve it. We need to make sure there's no artwork that needs to be cleared and fabrics and blah, blah, blah. There's all these issues and you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to do it myself then. Like, have you ever been on like a bigger job and had that situation where you're like, this person is telling me something costs a certain amount of money, but I know that if I was making my own short film with my friends, it would cost close to nothing. That type of thing happens to me all the time. Does that happen to you or, or not really? I will do that with VFX all the time. If I know that I can do a screen replacement or something like that myself. Right. Someone says it's like, no, oh, that's going to be thousands of dollars. Yeah. I'll just, I'll be like, well, send me the shot. I, I don't have a great anecdote, but I do have one secondhand from, I, I love the, the UCB TV show. So on, on the commentary track for the intro, there's a shot where they're running around with a pig in, the, in a helicopter blanking on the exact examples but there was this this moment where it was like Besser talks about it all the time where everyone was like we can't get a pig we can't get a pig we can't get a pig and he was like motherfuckers watch me and like 
went out to like the meat market, bought a whole dead pig for $50 and then came back and they shot the shot. And it was like, it's the perfect example of like, okay, well, if it's a dead pig, then where are we going to get it? And we have to send a PA to get it and all this X, Y, Z. And if it's a live pig, then we have to give an animal person. We need the permits and all of that stuff. And just as soon as you get all these producers into it, it's like it becomes this whole nightmare. And he created this motto for the show, which was pretend it's your own show. Which is hard because as a director, you're always thinking it's like your own project. You're doing everything for it. You're staying up all night. You're emailing this person asking for this favor. But, you know, as one of the crew members, the makeup artist who's this is just one of 20 jobs for her this month. She isn't going to fight to make everything perfect and lose money and risk everything in order to nail this job. You know, she'll probably just do a really solid, good job and tell you when she has issues or he. Let me ask you, Oren, because sometimes I think because, like you were saying, we're both people pleasers. Sometimes I will feel like I'm the person who, I used to say, it felt like I was the only person who knew the sun was going down. That I was rushing everybody and constantly trying to get people to go, go, go. And other people were like stopping us and saying, like, you know, actors wanted an additional take or, you know, different producers had alts that they wanted to try out, writers on set, all of that stuff, which was all great creatively, you know, but at the same time, I felt like I was the guy forcing us to gather shots rather than compose shots. Are you ever that guy? Yeah, I'm always, I've had talks with DPs where I'm like, why are, is everyone working so slow? Like, you know, we still have like five scenes to shoot today, right? But I also, on my very first movie, when I interviewed the DP, he said this thing to me, which was really kind of changed the way I think about crews and working on films, which was, he said, you're not one of those directors that it's like hour 14 and you're yelling at everyone about why they're not working hard enough and going fast enough and caring enough about the project, are you? Because that is not a type of director that I want to work with. And I thought to myself, I was like, oh, man, you know, maybe I am. And I actually I don't even know how I am because I've been that crew member that's like an hour, you know, 16 on a music video, like carrying a hundred pound light up a you know 20 foot ladder while the director is just like chatting with the actresses and been like you know why is he making me work so hard when you know I've been in that situation where people are upset with me that I don't care about the project as much as they do and if you just kind of process for a second that as the director as the writer as someone that's like above the line you might actually have much more invested personally in the project than these other people then you start kind of understanding like, ah, actually, I, I need to, like you said, prioritize my time and everything to be fair to the crew so that we're getting everything I want, but also treating everyone in a way that respects them as professionals, not as like other passion project people. Basically, it's just your passion project. So this is, uh, you know, sometimes we talk about client work. I did have a real problem with uh, some people once upon a time on a job where it was my team that I worked with all the time. And it was a situation where they kept having changes or, or tweaks or, or asking for some pretty drastic things that meant that my team was going to have to either literally stay up all night making these changes or uh, that they were going to have to ask uh, vendors to do really fast turnarounds and stay up all night making those changes and they'd already kind of been in the situation where they'd 
they were being extended favors. You know, it was kind of like literally like my production designer was like, oh, I had to buy those guys a six pack of beer in addition to like being super nice to them and stuff just to get them to, to give us this cut rate. And then we had to pile on and add all these extra crazy hours. And I was furious with these people because, A, they don't understand what you're asking of people. And B, they don't understand that I'm going to be working with these people for years, you know, and like, and they're ruining all the goodwill and like all the instances where I looked out for them and uh, wanted to make sure that they were properly compensated or taken care of or that their work was really celebrated. And it just doesn't matter. They were just going to, you know, after this job, they were never going to see any of us ever again. And that I have a real fucking problem with. And that's part of being professional. Like, you make like this awesome YouTube video for $1,000 and then a brand hires you to make their video and they're like, we'll give you $5,000 and you can't, you literally need 10 times as much money to make the exact same video if you're working with a client and a professional crew than if it's just you and your friends making stuff. I mean, something we talk about a lot is like safety. Like, you know, when you and your friends are making something, you can you know, stand out of the sunroof of your car and drive down the street and shoot someone running on the sidewalk. If you're doing a professional shoot, you need permits, police people, safety harnesses, you know, all sorts of insurance things. It's literally the difference in price between like close to free, $100, let's say, and $10,000 for the exact same shot. And it's something that I think a lot of us that come from kind of the short form internet age have trouble adapting to as we go bigger yeah absolutely yeah so we talked a lot about how you deal with a job when you have a feasible amount of money to actually execute the idea the job is bid properly Uh, but i feel like you and i both maybe have run into instances where we've been offered a job where we're not certain that the resources available are really adequate to match the ambitions of what you and I have or and have you ever like turned down a job because of that or so I guess what I'm really asking how do you decide whether or not you take a job yeah that's a great question so we talked a little bit about this when I had you know floated my tier theory about how there's like tier one jobs tier two jobs and tier three jobs and tier one are like basically your most important passionate projects your goal as a filmmaker and you know, ideally, the longer you're at it, the less tier three and tier two jobs you're doing and the more tier one jobs you have. So I feel like right now I take a lot of tier two jobs, I would call them, which are jobs that I think will either pay me good amount of money, will introduce me to some celebrity I've always wanted to work with, or will be great for my reel. Or I mean, and obviously the fourth thing, just they might just be something that I really want to make, like a TV show or a movie and I'll take them probably at any budget. So, yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, when it comes to kind of the types of jobs that you and I normally do, these smaller jobs, a lot of one or two day shoots, I'll mostly look at the creative, look at the budget, and figure out if, you know, I'm going to get something really useful out of it. Something that I do a lot less now that I used to do a lot more of is I was really interested in making new relationships, and I would, like, kill myself on jobs to make those relationships. But what you and I, I think, have both learned, (laughs) what everyone kind of learns in Hollywood is when you kill yourself for a job and, you know, you're doing it for really cheap, when they get the big budgets, they go to other people that 
uh, that wouldn't do the low budget jobs. That's not always the case. And obviously, you know, I think part of what we, we find down our podcast is that everyone started out doing free work and working on cool passion projects and being like a team player. But, you know, at some point, I don't want to be the cheap guy, you know, if someone is going to direct this thing for a hundred dollars, like then let them do it. And I'd rather save my time and or work on my own thing than just get totally work to the ground on something that I'm not that excited about. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a bad habit, especially since I'm relatively new to freelancing, that I kind of, I say yes to too many things. And I find that, you know, I always want to deliver above and beyond. So I end up grinding really hard and not ending up with um, enough time to, to work on my tier one projects. So I guess, tell me about the most recent time you turned down a job. Well, I've definitely turned down a ton of editing and visual effects jobs. And I mean, I used to have a problem where I would take any job, not just directing jobs, you know. So I've kind of started to turn down any non-directing or non-visual effects jobs. I just did visual effects on my friend Mitch's movie, who's been on the podcast. And I very much turned down that job like 10 times. But somehow the producers talked me into it. And it's fun. It's always fun to, you know, do effects and work on people's movies. But that was a time I turned down a job many times. But I do remember I, I got hired to make a video for Hallmark, and the rate was $1,000 to direct this video for their web channel, which at our level is, is not a ton of money, but it could be fun, and you get to work with new people, and Hallmark is something people have heard of. And it's just a day, right? It's the, the time cost isn't huge, right? It's one shoot day, yeah. But right. then and we did the casting, and we did went through the script, and I did a rewrite on the script and got notes, and change the script again and then you know someone at Hallmark basically wanted to go a whole new direction with it all new casting and I didn't really like the direction they were going in and they wanted me to repitch a bunch of things and then decide whether we're going to shoot it or not and so I just like cut my losses and I said hey you know what I'm not really into this creative I've already put in more time than I thought on this project and you know I like all of you guys but I'm gonna take off because <laughs> It's just like not really worth my time. And it's kind of stressing me out in this weird way that I just don't think is like healthy for me. So that that's something kind of, you know, it was a few years ago, but it's something I always remember because I like to think of myself as someone that's not very flaky, but every once in a while you get a job that you just realize is, is going in a bad direction and you have to take off. So it's not exactly saying no, but it's close to saying no. I, I think that's actually even better because I think sometimes... I'll be so far down the rabbit hole that I realize well, before I realize like, oh no, this isn't exactly what you I shouldn't thought have I was taken that job, for, and I shouldn't have taken yeah. the job, and then it's too late. And there's always relationships that you have to worry about, you know. Well, see, you're freelance, right? So that means you basically take jobs as they come and what you want. I'm in this situation right now where I'm kind of permalance, which means I'm paid like a freelancer, and I can take side jobs if I want to, but I kind of have this obligation to this production company I'm working with. And with them, there have been many times over the past couple of years where we've gotten a job and I've specifically said, no, this is not a good job for us. The creative's not good. The budget's not good. It almost always is something unscripted, which I have no real interest in doing unscripted work. I only want to do scripted work. But they say, hey, it's money. It's a job. We need to pay you. So you got to do this work. We don't care that you don't like it. So I have wanted to turn things down and not really been allowed to, but... There is nothing more powerful in life than than saying no to someone, but it's a really, really hard 
thing to do. Oh, you know, let me just add one more thing as a as a general tip. When you're in the, the very lucky position that you don't have to take a job, that you can say yes or no. One thing that I have done before, this is what happened with that visual effects job, is I've come back and I've tried to give them a price that's so ridiculous that there's no way they would hire you. And then they know like, oh, wait, actually, if we have a lot of money, we'll go back to Oren. But if we don't, we'll go to Matt Enlow. He says yes to every job. Um, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, my friend used to work for Mark McGrath, you know. Uh, sure. The, the Sugar, Sugar Ray. Ray. Yeah, the Sugar Ray. Guy. He, j- he just wants to and, fly. Yeah, she had all these VHS tapes of his music videos, and he wanted to transfer them to DVDs. This was like 10 years ago. And transferring VHS to DVD, like at home with burning DVDs and all, all that stuff is just so hard and painful and like boring, but it's cheap. You can do it for like close to free, even 10 years ago. So she said, Oren, how much would you charge to do that? And I said, I don't know, like $300 a tape, something, you know, it, it cost me close to nothing. I just tried to throw some number that there's no way he would say yes to. And she's like, oh, great, <laughs> bringing 20 tapes over. So I actually just <laughs> bought a machine for like 300 bucks. They <laughs> put the DVD on one side and the tape on the other and yeah, just transferred just, over. You got recorded like at the same time. <laughs> That's not bad, yeah. actually. So if you can come back with just a really high number, even if you hate the job, at least you're making a lot of money, you know? So there's always that. Also, you can always refer a friend who maybe is in a different situation than you. Like sometimes you're really booked up and don't need to take the job, but I'm sure you know someone who would love to transfer Sugar Ray VHS tapes. Yeah. In the future, I definitely think we should do an episode on referrals and recommendations because... I've been in sticky situations. You never want to recommend someone that ends up ruining someone's shoot. And yeah. it's really hard for me to recommend someone unless I think it's perfect for who the person that wants to hire them and perfect for the person that wants to get hired. And a lot of times when I turn a job down, it's because I see some big red flag. So I don't want mm-hmm. any of my friends to deal with that red flag. And I don't want to give it to someone that I barely know because I don't want the hiring people to think that I'm like a bad judge of character. So, yeah, referring people is is definitely cool, but it has to be the exact right combination of people. Otherwise, I wouldn't touch it because I just don't want to get in trouble for referring the wrong person. <laughs> Great. Well, I look forward to uh, getting referred to on your jobs, Oren. You can always send me your red flags. Are you kidding? You've turned you... down more jobs than I've t- taken <laughs> yeah, I think in I'm the old. past month. What are you talking about? Okay, well, let's move on to unpaid endorsements. Bam, 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 bam. You got anything? Yeah, I do, actually. I do have one. This is kind of a, an abstract sort of idea that I love, but I've been doing this thing mostly just to try and unwind where I'll buy like a Blu-ray of some sort, something, you know, something kind of like bigger budget. So it's got a ton of special features, you know, Interstellar or Scott Pilgrim or Blade Runner all kind of come to mind. And Interstellar and Scott Pilgrim are perfect examples because I like those movies fine, but like I don't love them. But any time that I'm just, I've got an extra like 10 or 15 minutes and I just don't have the energy to do anything else, I'll pop in a special feature or just watch the movie and just try and really absorb every single moment of what they're doing, right? Because I certainly mm-hmm. admire those filmmakers. And I think the idea of rewatching a movie 10, 15, 20 times, especially when you don't love it, is when you can really get into the meat and the bones of what's happening on screen. And so my unpaid endorsement is to 
pick a movie that you only so so like and watch it into the ground. That is a great endorsement. I actually, when I'm bored with a movie, I'll just start looking at the coverage. I'll be like, hmm, why did they choose this shot? And why did they choose this shot? And how many seconds was this shot on screen before the next shot? Mm-hmm. And I'll just try to really analyze the editing to keep myself interested in it. But with good movies, literally, I can do that for three or four shots, and then I get like sucked into the movie. Right, exactly. Unless you've seen that movie 10 times, and it's the only movie you've watched in the last month. Well, cool. That's a great endorsement. My endorsement is this website that I just discovered. I don't know how I just discovered it. It just seems like it's existed forever, and it's so obvious. But it's called iSpot.tv, the letter I, Spot.tv. Are you familiar with it? I am, yes. Yeah, it's a website for commercials, but they track real-time every commercial that's aired. So my wife, she's actually in three commercials that have been airing a lot lately. Three TV commercials and one radio commercial. One of them is for Sprint. There's one for GE and there's one for Dish Networks. And so as the husband of my wife, I'm so interested in like how many people are seeing it and what the residuals are going to be and all the interesting things of, you know, the commercial world, like the broadcast TV commercial world. And so on this website, they show you when every commercial airs nationally. It'll show you the last time it aired and how many times it's aired and how much money they estimated has been spent on airing that commercial. All this like really interesting commercial information. And also because I'm directing this TV, these TV spots next week, I am just like kind of commercial hungry. I'm just like watching a lot of commercials. And so you can just go to that site, hit browse ads, and you can see pretty much every commercial that's playing on TV right now. And it's really interesting to just study how many shots they have, how long those shots last on screen. Like if it's a 30-second commercial, is it like 16 seconds of the comedy bit and 14 seconds of cards and taglines and showing you what the product is? It's really, really specific, very different than like your traditional narrative editing or directing or anything because in the commercial, it might be four shots and you're spending all day getting those four shots perfectly in the right options and I I don't know. I'm kind of just been fascinated by this world of commercials recently. And iSpot.tv is a great research tool to check out. Yeah, I I think the number one thing in terms of understanding commercials is really internalizing how long 30 seconds is or 15 seconds is. It's so short. It's so fast. So your, your point is exactly right. Just studying up and looking at literally how many setups are they pulling off? What sort of information is in each single frame? It's a real exercise and study in efficient economic storytelling. Yeah, and everything. My my spots, there are about six sentences in each spot. And I'm like, how the hell are we going to fit six sentences into 30 seconds? <laughs> it's not easy. And also visually, because you're cutting so fast, you just can't have your frame be too cluttered, you know? Mm-hmm. You need to know exactly where to look, especially if you have writing on the screen. It's really fascinating, and it just makes me have so much respect for creative directors and graphic designers and copywriters and like all the people that go into creating a commercial before it's even shot. It's just a really, really fascinating world. So iSpot.tv. If you guys want to endorse anything, give us some feedback, rate us on iTunes. We would love it. You can email us at 
just shootitpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at SmiteyPileg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. You could also follow the show at Just Shoot It Pod. And give us a call at 2626-SHOOT1. We'll play your questions on the air. And we also want to give a shout out to Eric Kripow or Kripo. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name yet, but we will know by the next episode. But he has is one of our listeners and he is helping us edit the podcast. So we are hoping we can get these out even more frequently than we do. Thanks so much, Eric. And take it away, Steve Combs. So, Matt, what have you been up to? Uh, Eric, that's an example of something to edit out. <laughs> uh... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 